Welcome to Voices from the Mountain, a new podcast featuring interviews, poetry, music, and teachings offered by the countless talented and dedicated souls who have been inspired by the magic of Lama Foundation. Welcome back, listeners. We've had a bit of a pause in podcast production for a couple of reasons. First, Habib Chishti is off to travel the world and will no longer be helping to produce Voices from the Mountain. We wish him well, happy traveling, and success in all he does. Thanks, Habib and the Hot Mahatmas for the intro and outro, and for bringing the timekeeping bells of Lama to our audience. The focus of our podcast today is tea, specifically the Japanese tradition of Chano-yu, also known as Chado, or the way of tea, and even more specifically, how this art has manifested at Lama. This brings me to the other reason this episode is taking a while to produce. It is so near and dear to my heart that I feel I must absolutely convey the details in a way that does justice to the topic. (sighs) No pressure. (laughs) In Japan, October is the month when the old and broken are elevated. In the tea traditions, it is when we drink the remnants of last year's harvest out of bowls with repaired cracks, using tools with evidence of history, and highlighting poetry that points toward the changing season. This timely focus crosses over with our campaign to honor and let go of the old kitchen at Lama, which looks more and more like a creature every day. The roof tiles have become shaggy, the wooden structure bends and curves and moves as if it's breathing. Looking at it, I half expect it to simply get up and walk away. I figured this month of honoring the old would be the perfect lead-in for a story about tea at Lama. My own study of tea began with Leslie McLean in 1993. We will hear from Leslie quite a bit during this episode. It is my hope that, by weaving together anecdotes, history, and personal stories, I will be able to paint a picture of what tea at the end of the road is all about. So with that, I will let Sadiq von Briesen take us in. A ronin, a masterless samurai, came into this village and went into the tavern and ordered something to drink. And a young boy came in to fetch something for his teacher and accidentally bumped against the samurai, who turned around in anger. He grabbed the the young boy and and dragged him outside and said he was going to kill him. And the boy said, Please, let me say goodbye to my teacher first. And the samurai was a little taken aback by that. What makes me think you'll come back? Well, I promise I will come back. I must say goodbye to my teacher before you kill me. So he went to his teacher, who was his tea teacher. And his tea teacher said to him, 
well, you must serve him tea. So he gathered his implements and the mat, and he went back carrying these things. And the summer I was waiting rather impatiently. And he said, my teacher says I must serve you tea before you kill me. And the samurai was again a little surprised by this. So they sat down, he rolled out his mat and set up his implements and the samurai sat down. He made tea, he served it, the samurai drank it and bowed. And at that point, the samurai bowed in return, stood up, and walked out of town as fast as he could. I came across tea when a friend who had studied it came to visit me and demonstrated the tea ceremony using pots and pans out of the kitchen. And even though it was very different from the original, there's something about it that drew me. It seemed intuitively something I needed to do. And I felt like it was a way to get under the surface of things. I felt I was sort of bobbing on the surface of life and I needed a way in. So I decided to learn with a teacher who lived in New Zealand, which is where I was living. And after a year or so of that, I suddenly knew I had to leave university and go to Japan and study full time. There was a scholarship program, so I studied alongside people from other countries, Russia and Egypt and America and Brazil and India. So it was a a lesson in international relations as much as anything. The program that Leslie is talking about is called Midorikai. In order for us to tell you about it properly, well, we're going to need to back up about a thousand years. It is said that powdered green tea was brought to Japan from China in 1191 by a Buddhist monk named Isai, also known as the founder of Zen Buddhism in Japan. He promoted tea for its health benefits mostly, and for a couple of centuries, tea was enjoyed by the samurai class, nobility, and commoners alike. In the mid-1400s, a Zen priest by the name of Shuko, drawing on Chinese ceremony, developed tea into a Japanese art, incorporating the spirit of Zen. Take no Jo'o furthered the teachings of Shuko. Rikyu, a student of Jo'o, took up the mantle of tea for all people in the mid-1500s, refining the practice and developing the art based on the Wabi aesthetic. We'll talk about that a little later on. Rikyu had three great-grandsons who later established their own schools of tea. Uda Senke, Omoto Senke, and Mushinakoji Senke. In 1970, Senso Shitsu, the 15th Grand Tea Master of the Urusenkai School of Tea, established an official class for non-Japanese students at their headquarters in Kyoto, with the intent of spreading his teachings of peacefulness through a bowl of tea across the world. This program was given the name Midorikai in 1973, and as of today has taught over 500 students from around the world. I stayed for three years studying full-time. I I felt after a year I didn't know enough to keep doing it when I left. 
After studying in Japan, Leslie visited the United States with her boyfriend. While there, the two broke up. Leslie went on to visit friends who brought her to Lama. The amazing thing was when I got there, there were tea ceremony utensils sitting there um, because there was already a history of tea at Lama. Tea came to Lama in the late 60s in the person of Millie Johnston, who lived in New York and who with her husband was instrumental in the Urasenki Tea School in New York and also uh, the Zen center there and also in the Zen monastery which was built later in upstate New York. She, according to Asha, she wrote asking if she could come visit and and offer tea. And so this, this lady, this very refined lady, with long gray hair and long loose gown, walks up the hill with her straw mat and a kettle and started serving tea to us. And then got about seven of us to spend three hours on our knees learning how to serve this very amazing 149-step ballet where you ended up with a delicious sweet and a bowl of highly caffeinated tea. So during her two or three weeks while she was there, we all got really sore legs. We got the giggles all the time because all you could do was make a mistake. And she would come and serve us tea when we were covered in mud making adobe bricks and treat us as though we were royalty, you know, and bring all of her utterly clean things down to the, the adobe field and set up a mat and serve us tea. It was really amazing, and it took for some of us. Asha Greer, whose voice you just heard, besides being one of the founding members of Lama, and despite her natural inclination toward the formless, took up the highly formal practice of tea, thus joining Lama at its roots with Chado. I once visited Asha at her home in Virginia. She brought me to her tea house in the woods and served me tea. I will always remember her walking in, holding the tea bowl and whisk in the traditional way, but donning nothing on her bare feet but leaves from the forest. I started studying with Asha in 1989, so almost 30 years ago. My first tea lesson with Asha, I had been a guest many times and I thought, I don't want to study this. This is too formal and too linear and uh, I want to do something expansive. And she said, just come for one lesson and if you don't like it, I'll stop bugging you. We were alone and she sat me down and she very slowly and carefully washed my feet. After that, she said, let's have a tea lesson now. This was the spirit of tea. Now we'll work on the details. Not only did Sakina go on to study tea in earnest, but she became deeply connected to the practice and eventually, in 1997, began teaching in her hometown of Santa Fe. It's important to note here that Sakina and Sadiq are husband and wife, and that Asha and Sadiq are siblings. While Asha's tea house sits quietly on a hillside in Virginia, Sadiq and Sakina have built a tea room inside their home. Thank you. 
as a guest, you come into a space and there's a host who greets you, serves you sweets, and then serves a ritualized form of tea. It helps you with how to drink it and then cleans up. So the host is doing, but the host is also creating this large, calm space. You're invited to come in and share that. When you leave a tea gathering, your heart is open and full. There's often just this deep feeling of gratitude. Tea is a practice where the exact way you move and hold things and what you say when is central. In Japan, where I first studied tea, this is what we focused on at every lesson. And weaving through these movements are deeper spiritual principles that you slowly discover as you practice the ceremony over and over again. In Japan, I was told about these principles, but at Lama, they became very real to me. Tea teaches you about service and what an honor it is to serve others with your whole heart, even if your movements are rusty and you're making lots of mistakes. And for the guests, tea teaches you about accepting whatever is given to you with gratitude, even when the tea has lumps in it or has taken a very long time to get to you. Lama was a perfect place to do tea because the principles are very much part of what Lama is anyway. No two tea gatherings are the same. So we practice, practice, practice. We can't make something happen. We need to just do the form, apply who we are, and let it create a welcoming space. We can't make people feel welcome, but we can give them a space where they can allow themselves to feel welcome, to open to the quietness and a different way of being. There is a Japanese word, chajin. It literally translates as tea person. However, the implications of the title are that one embodies the spirit of tea. This subtlety really can only be expressed through stories and teachings, as one can't necessarily make a list of what constitutes a chajin. I think the concept of wabi, sadly made popular here in the United States through overpriced interior design elements, though referring much more to nature in its origin, really gets to the point. By the mid-1500s, tea was overtaken by a highly refined aesthetic featuring expensive teawares from China and touting status for those with riches enough to present them. In response to this elitism, Rikyu, in the path of his teachers, offered a counterbalance. Where most were elevating fine symmetrical porcelain and gilded tea bowls, Rikyu held aloft a black bowl that looked as if it had been scooped right out of the earth. The emperor had built a tea room entirely out of gold. Rikyu found perfection in the simplicity of a four-and-a-half mat tatami room with a bucket from the garden for cold water and tea tools made by local craftsmen. Fujiwara no Iataka from the Shin Kokin Wakashu anthology wrote, For those who await only flowers, show them the spring grasses emerging from the snow in a mountain village. Sen Soshitsu XV wrote in commentary on that poem, If wabi were only loneliness, emptiness, and yin, the most important essence of the way of tea would surely not have attained its present level of perfection. 
only when Wabi becomes color and shines, becomes wise and functions, is there life in the way of tea. In Japan, the form is essential, but at Lama we played around with the form quite a bit. We sometimes mixed in tea ceremonies with our, our other traditions and practices, and it could be very powerful. During one of our Vipassana meditation retreats, I offered tea ceremony at my cabin for retreatants, and so a group of them showed up, steeped in silence after several days of meditation. Usually for first-time guests, I explain what to do to be a guest, but I couldn't then because they were in silence. So I just pointed where to sit and served them tea. And they knew what to do, because everyone was so focused and attentive from meditating. It was like sitting with a group of tea masters who could see every little thing I did. Millie told two stories which convinced me that this was a very real business, this tea. Her teacher in New York City asked her to go to a shopping mall and serve tea. Indoor shopping malls, well, she ended up, as I recall, going across the river to New Jersey with some tea implements. And she went into a shopping mall in New Jersey, which I believe was indoors, and rolled out her mat and set up her kettle and her tray and all of the implements and sat there. And most people just walked by and ignored it. And a few people stopped and stared curiously. And a few people stopped and she would look up at them and invite them to sit down and have some tea. And they did. I don't know how many bowls of tea she served, but there were a number. And several of those people burst into tears in the middle of her serving tea. Part of that is attributable to Millie's ability to create a space. Part of it was that it was the first time they had ever felt what that space was, and it was overwhelming to them. When Leslie came, you know, I mean, she brought the real thing, because all I knew was Ryakuban, which is the simplest tea ceremony. She knew ladle tea, and she, I mean, she just knew how to make it really great. I could make very funny ceremonies. Yeah, they were thrilled because here was someone who had, had learned it properly, quotation marks, and I was thrilled because I wasn't yet confident about it and here were people who wanted to learn and I still didn't think of myself as someone who could teach it. The thing about when you do tea in Japan is you really have a sense, even studying it for three years, that you know nothing and that it might take another 50 years before you know something. That's what I felt. So here I was being given the opportunity, even though I knew nothing, to just impart the bits that I did know. 
so from doing it in that way, away from the Japanese system, I was able to learn how to teach it, but also learn more about it than I I knew existed. There was a um, different emphasis at Lama because people at Lama were not there specifically to do tea. They were there to awaken their consciousness. So it's it was completely different way of doing tea. People were, were really interested in serving others. So there's this incredibly sincere approach to doing tea. You didn't have to do it correctly, which was a, more of an emphasis in Japan. It was more about doing it sincerely. We had a teacher from Germany, Uli Haas, and he came to teach a retreat with us. And we ended up doing tea in this um, burnt-out dome, which, you know, which didn't have a roof, and it was just um, the burnt-out shell of this building. And he, he was completely in the mood of it, and we used utensils made from fire-burnt, crumpled piece of glass was the tea scoop and things like that. And, you know, he, he got into the spirit of it. One of the principles of tea is that you, you use what's around you and you make a unique occasion and it's not even though when you study it it's it it can seem a little rote it's not really about that it's not deeply about that so I think Lama had a real authenticity because everyone was so serious about it when you study in Japan there's many different ceremonies you can do and part, part of the joy of doing it is going through all these different ceremonies at Lama, we stuck to to the basics because the basics had so much to offer. One of my more irreverent versions where I had a tea whisk sort of taped onto the end of a Black & Decker drill. I asked people if they wanted a bowl of tea, and they, they always said yes, and I whipped out this drill and whipped up the tea. And actually, I must say, it wasn't very good because the motion of the drill was the wrong type. It wasn't back and forth. So people got this horrible sort of swill water instead. <laughs> what I learned is that even when you do it in jest it or highly unusual, idiosyncratically, it's actually still referring to the real thing. So that because I was given permission to play with it, you know, I think perhaps in Japan that wouldn't have been okay, at least not at the school. But here I was free to do the wildest things, and, and we did. But it just made me more... It made me love tea much more, and it made... It still referred to the real thing. taught my kids the term matsukaze. I don't know that term. It's the wind in the pines, and it's the sound of the kettle when the water is is boiling and it makes that that sound. They call that matsukaze. Oh, matsukaze. Oh, yeah, and when you pour the water in it and it turns off. Yeah. That's the moment. That is the moment that most, many, many people who become tea people notice. 
that you, when you pour that water in and the, the bubbling of the water stops all of a sudden then you have an experience of total silence even if there's a lot of ambient noise it is so it always strikes me right in the heart to give what you have whatever that is however humble that is to give it fully tea is capable of creating a space of peace and calmness tranquility is one word for it calmness of mind i think is a more accurate way of, of putting it it's a way of life it's a way of life thank you so much for tuning in today this has been a glimpse into the world of tea at lama However, there are so many who I could not interview for this podcast, folks who have been influential not just at Lama and in New Mexico, but in tea circles beyond New Mexico, and for me personally. It is my hope that we'll be able to continue with these podcasts well beyond our Enliven Connect Rebuild campaign, which ends this Friday, October 19th, and that they will include further explorations into the history, culture, and practice of Chado. Until then... I'm so glad you tuned in. Please feel free to connect with us at LlamaConnect.org. Let us know if you have a Llama-related story that you'd like to tell or one that you'd like to hear. And don't fret. If you're enjoying this, I have at least three more podcasts in the queue. Voices from the Mountain has been brought to you by Llama Foundation. Produced, edited, and hosted by me, Tracy Cates. Music and some narration by Joe Cates. Intro by Habib Chishti and the Hot Mahatmas. With special guests Sakina and Sadiq Von Briesen, Asha Greer, and Leslie McLean. <laughs>